Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 13 through 25 this evening. And I entitled the message, Staying Clean in an Unclean World. Verses 1 through 12, kind of give a background before we get into the study for tonight. Verses 1 through 12, Peter emphasized walking in hope, our hope of salvation. So Peter now turns to the Christian's need to live a holy life. You know, we just don't get saved and cruise along the rest of our life here and on our way to heaven. We get saved, and then we're called to, and we need to, live a holy life. So here in verses 13 through 21, Peter emphasizes walking in holiness. And the two go together. Walking in hope and walking in holiness. We read in 1 John 3, 3, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now, to us, a holy person isn't a strange person. Holy people are a special people. His life has a different quality about it. And the way he now lives isn't just different from the way he used to live before. But it's different from the unbelievers around him. So a Christian's life of holiness, it seems so weird to those who aren't saved. And I remember, you know, being around, well, you know, I wasn't around a lot of people uh, in the group that I hung out with that were saved. But I would have to use, you know, Pastor Raleigh Xavier's brother, you know, as one that, you know, again, I went to high school with him and I ran with him and, and I knew him very well. And we're best friends to this day, one of my best friends. And but when he got saved, man, I just, I couldn't handle it. It was just too weird for me. Now, the things that we used to do, and that wasn't weird. But living a holy life, going back and being a, a godly husband and godly father and a godly man, that was weird. So to the, to, to, to the, to the unsaved, man, that, that holy life, it, it's, just, it, it's just so different. It, and again, it, it's weird to us. So... But as we all know, it's not easy to live in this world and keep a holy walk because we see the violence, we see the lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist, it's all around us. It's in the world. And the world is always pressuring us. It's always trying to lure us in to get us to go with the flow. Now, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a, a live and strong fish to flow against the current. And in verse 13, Peter gives his readers real spiritual grounds to encourage them, as well as us tonight, to live and to keep a different way of life, a holy walk in an unholy world. And the basis, that he, the, the basis for what he's going to say uh, is based on the character of God in verses 13 through 17. So let's begin now with verse 13 of, of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And Peter says, Therefore, gird up, gird up the loins of your mind. Notice he says, Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the therefore, this word gives us the prompting for sanctification. In other words, therefore, of everything that he said in verses 1 through 12, the hope of salvation that we have and the salvation that we receive, now we are to be sanctified. We are to walk a holy life. 
The basis for therefore in verse 13 looks back to what was just written, like I said, in the previous section. It means on which account, according to Thayer's New Testament lexicon. Therefore means on which account. And many times it's translated for which cause. We see it in Romans 15.22 and 2 Corinthians 4.16. In the King James Version, we see it many times, which helps us to see the meaning of the word more, cl- more, more clearly. Again, it refers us back to the blessing of salvation that Peter has just emphasized in the beginning of this letter in verses 1 through 12. Because these blessings include such inspiring blessings as the prospects of salvation we have, which are a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3. The possessions from salvation, we have an inheritance that doesn't fade away, verse 4. The protection and salvation, we're kept, verse 5 tells us. The pleasure from salvation, we greatly rejoice, verse 6 tells us. The privilege in knowing and having salvation is to us, verse 12. And these blessings should truly inspire and encourage a sanctified life immediately, without delay. Because you see, we have received the gift of salvation, verse 9 says. So we're not to take that gift, so great a gift as Hebrews says, we're not to take that for granted. We are children of God, so we are expected. We are expected to do the will of our Heavenly Father. And then Peter commands three things that they were to do. He said in verse 13, first of all, was gird up the loins of your mind. This idea comes from the tucking in of the folds. Remember that, as you know, they they wore long robes. They were down to their feet. And... They would tuck their robes under their belt so that they wouldn't, so it wouldn't get in the way of them walking, running, or working. So Peter is applying this idea to the mind. He says, do this to your mind. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying, don't let anything hinder your mind. Anything that would take your mind off the Lord, out of serving the Lord, don't let anything hinder your mind as you, you put it to work for the Lord. There can't be any slackness or looseness in your thought life. The word mind here speaks of the believer's consciousness. That is his conscious relationship to God. It means that his mind is ready and able to think clearly in order to promote God's name, his will, and his kingdom. That's what we're called to do. To promote the name of God, the will of God, and the kingdom of God. The mind should be free from any hindrance that would keep us from doing those things. Like fear. Our mind should be free of fear. Our mind should be free of worry in serving the Lord. Now, there's not a a lot that the Lord can do with a fearful and worried heart. Jesus said in Matthew, don't worry. Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, which anxious is another form of worrying. In in Psalm 37, 8, the psalmist said, do not fret. And the reason is, he said, it only causes harm. That's why the devil tries to push God's people to despair and hopelessness over their circumstances. If he can get you to worry and be fearful of the things that you're going through in your life, you can't be much help to God. It can paralyze you to the service of God and the things of God. It's often been said that if an army goes into battle already discouraged, it's certain to be defeated. Why? Because you see, a discouraged spirit 
can lead to a total discouragement and uselessness. Remember before Gideon went into battle against the Midianites, what the Lord told him to tell the people in Judges 7.3? He said, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart at once from Mount Gilead. 22,000 people left. Fear can be infectious. It can spread to the other people and then they all have that fear and, and they can't, they're not of any use. We need to understand how the attacks of the enemy on our spirit work so that we can better learn how to resist them. If we can remove us, if he can remove us from our rightful position in the Lord, then he'll try, as Daniel 7, 25 says, to wear out the saints of the Most High. And he tries to do that to us every day. Wear us out where we can't be of any value to the Lord. The second thing that Peter says there in verse 3, he says, be sober. Be sober. This literally means not to be drunk. Symbolically, it means to be composed. It means to have it together. It means to be observant, self-controlled, able to see things in the right perspective. You see, he wants us to have clear minds so that we can make the right choices so that we are ready for Christ's return. The mind has to be free from impulsiveness and confusion. It has to reject the temptation to be influenced by intoxicating beverages or drugs. It has to stay alert. The third thing Peter says there in verse 13, and hope to the end, notice, for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter gives us here and gives an encouraging word to his readers. He sees that as they're going through persecution and hardships, that their hope is fading. And he encourages the believers there to look with hope toward the fulfilling of their salvation because he wants them to have a living hope toward their inheritance. In verse 4, which it says, it doesn't fade away. We have a hope that doesn't fade away. And their hope is in the grace, it says in verse 13, that is to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed in the world or to the world. The word grace is equal to the salvation we receive in verse 9 and 10 and inheritance in verse 4. So the believer's believer's hopes are to focus their attention on their salvation. Peter says, notice, the grace is to be given. Now the Greek says that grace is being brought. And in that sense, that it's already on its way. God is the one bringing the salvation to the believers that they, they just have to wait for it. They know that grace is brought to them through the word of Jesus Christ and it will be made complete when he appears. When he returns, he will bring the fulfillment of their salvation to his followers. When he appears, his redemption work will be fulfilled in all believers. In all believers. He gives them full salvation through deliverance from sin glorification of body and soul, the knowledge, and the knowledge that he will be in their midst forever. And then in verses 14 through 16, Peter warns the believers not to conform to this world. And he urges them to strive for holiness and he confirms his words with a quotation from the Old Testament. Notice the three points he gives in verses 14 through 16. He'll, he's going to give a warning. He's going to give an exhortation. And a confirmation. First, the warning, notice in verse 14. 
He says, as obedient children, now that you're saved and you're to walk this holy life, you're to do it as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. So as obedient children of the Father, you wouldn't want to conform to this world. You wouldn't conform to this world. Now, as parents, you train your children to be obedient, don't you? And you expect them. You expect obedience from your children, not from strangers. Don't follow, he says, the evil desires that you have when you didn't know better or when you were ignorant. The world has its own way of living. Unfortunately, believers are often drawn to that way of living. But Peter's warning them. He says, hey, guys, don't follow the evil desires that are obvious in the world. And then Peter mentions what some of them used to be. He says, you used to be pagans who lived in ignorance of the things of God. And you were separated from God at one time. He says, you were ignorant about the moral law law of God, so you lived however you wanted, and you were led by your evil desires. But that's not to be anymore. Now, by comparison, the Jews had received the word of God. And they knew that their first duty was to obey God's word. So Peter's not just talking to Jewish Christians, but also readers who used to be pagans. Peter knows the temptation of those he's writing to. The temptation to go back to their old way of life is real, and that some of them may have already done so. How many people do you know, and I know many over the years, that have gone back to their old way of life? They've gone back to the desires of their heart and their old life. Peter's warning here. He says, don't go back. He's exhorting them. He's warning them. So he commands them here to stop giving in to sinful desires and to to, to live their lives instead in obedience and holiness to God. He gives a second exhortation in verse 15. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. So now here's the exhortation. In chapter 2, verse 9, Peter tells his readers that God has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 2 here, in chapter 1, he says, you've been called out of the world. You're the elect. You're the chosen of God. And in his love, God calls his people to form a holy nation in chapter 2, verse 9. And then to get the point that Peter's trying to make, calling and holiness are cause and effect. Calling and holiness are cause and effect. You see, God calls his people to be holy. Why? Because he is holy. Of all of God's attributes, none is more significant than his holiness. His holiness is spoken both about, is spoken about both in the Old Testament and the New Testament more than any other attribute. God is sinless. And God cannot be influenced by sin. And in his holiness, he destroys sin. Peter takes the idea of holy and he applies it here to his readers and says again, as he which has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct in everything that you do. Because Hebrews tells us in twelve fourteen, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. That's pretty heavy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. 
God calls his people out of a world of sin and into a life of holiness. And you know what? He expects us. He expects that whatever we say, whatever we do, or whatever we think is to be holy. He expects that from us. And when Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He expects the believers to be imitators of God. Why? Because he is holy. We are to reflect the father's character, his nature. We're his children. Now, what's Peter's basis for exhorting the believers to avoid sin and strive for holiness? Because the Bible says so. This is next the confirmation that Peter gives. Peter reinforces his teachings with with words that were spoken by God himself. Look at verse 16. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. The first step in staying clean in an unclean world is to ask, What does Scripture say? Romans 4.3 You want to know what the right thing to do? Read the Scripture. Do you want to know how to live godly in the ungodly world? Do you want to know what's right and what's wrong? Read the scriptures. That's what we have. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 70. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That means for what's right, for reproof, for what's not right, for correction, for making it right, for instruction in righteousness, for staying right. Why? That the man or woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know about staying clean in an unclean world is in the Word of God. That's why we're teaching the Word of God. That's why we say you need to know the Word of God. It's, It's hard to imagine being a Christian, but we don't read God's Word every day. In God's Word... We will find principles. We will find values. We will find promises. We will find people to guide us in today's decisions. And if we are really willing to obey God, He will show us His truth. Even though God's way of working, uh, God's ways of working may change through the ages, His character never does. His spiritual principles never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't study the Bible just to get information. If we want information, we can go on the Internet. We don't study the Bible just to know the Bible. We study the Bible that we might get to know God better. The Scriptures are the revelation of God. You want to get to know God? Read the Scriptures. There are a lot of serious Bible readers and they're happy quoting scripture. They're happy. To, they, they love getting into debates. They love doing outlines. They love, you know, uh, explanations. They love to mark their Bible with their highlighters. But yet they really don't get to know God. It's good to know the word of God. We're called to know the word of God. We have to know the word of God. Why? So that we can answer every man for what we believe. But again, knowing the word of God should help us to know the God of the word better. Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? 
I mean, Satan, uh, Jesus frustrated Satan with, with the very simple formula. It is written. It is written. And then he would give the appropriate scripture. You know, many times I have people say, hey, where can I go to, 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 to help me with this? Or how can I, you know, it, they don't know where to go in the Bible. They don't know where to find the scriptures to help them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to give them hope. Notice again, when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus said, it is written, and then gave him the appropriate scripture. Obviously, he knew the word of God. So that he could battle the enemy. That he could get victory over the enemy. And it's important we know how to do the same thing. Satan, because Satan recognizes the authority of God's word. That's why he will do everything in his power to keep you out of it. One of the most often quoted reasons for not spending time in the word is busy. Oh, I've been so busy. You know, it's just been a real hectic week. I said, remember, I'm probably sure with you before, but busy is an acronym for being under Satan's yoke. He loves it. He loves keeping us busy with things so that he can keep us out of the word. Because again, that is the only thing that we have. That's our armor. That's our sword for defeating the enemy. And he recognized, why do you think he he went into the Garden of Eden and just, just, you know, confounded Eve and got her to doubt the word of God. He questioned her. He, he got her to doubt the word of God. And when he did that, he disarmed her of her sword. And she was defeated. Because he knows the authority and the power in the word of God. Satan himself used it when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. You know, in Psalm 91. Satan knows how to use the word of God. That authority rendered Satan powerless to tempt Jesus. So you see, the written word of God, it demands respect and it demands obedience. Peter in verse 16 here is quoting Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Peter goes to Leviticus because Leviticus is a book on holiness. Leviticus teaches that God's people should be holy. The reason is because God is holy. Because it's written. And the word holy is found more in Leviticus than any other book in the Bible. Holiness doesn't end with forgiveness and cleanses of sin for the believer. But starts with a vigorous life of fighting against and forsaking sin. The believer has to strive to live obediently before God and as a result demonstrate the meaning of the word holy today to those around us. People want to see a demonstration of our faith, not hear about it. Verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct conduct yourselves throughout the time that you stay here in fear. Thank God he's a father to us. Because we can call on him. And we can approach him like a father. We've been invited. 
and urged in Hebrews chapter 10 to come to him. And God is more interested in us than our earthly parents could ever be. He loves it when we come to him. Don't you love it when your children come to you? I do. And we can come whenever we want. We can stay as long as we want. We can tell him whatever we want because he's our father and God doesn't have favors. I don't have to pick a number when I want to go see God. I don't have to wait or make an appointment. His door is always open. And God judges people by what they say and do. It says here, according to his works. He doesn't respect us for who we are, nor does he give special treatment to the high and mighty. We should live in a reverent and humble fear of God as we pass through this world, pilgrims. We can come to him boldly, Hebrews 4, 16 says, but not disrespectfully. Verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Again, the character of the father demands our holiness. He demands our sanctification because we are his children. People have all kinds of worldly ideas about how we are to come to God and how he can be persuaded to turn his back and look the other way at their sins. But salvation is not for sale. It's not to be bargained with. Peter might have been thinking of Simon the magician here when he said this. Because if you remember, Simon the magician tried to buy the ability of imparting the Holy Spirit to others. He was probably hoping to make the big bucks by selling the gift to others. And it's very obvious that he was terribly ignorant about spiritual things and Peter rebuked him for it on the spot. And a lot of people have the same wrong idea about spiritual things. And all false religions teach that salvation can be bought or earned and they offer salvation and, and, and indulgences for sale. They offer pilgrimages and penances as a way to salvation. Do this, go here, do that. They encourage feasts and scourgings or fasts and scourgings. Peter says, no, he rejects all of these things. He says, silver and gold cannot buy the peace of God or peace with God. Psalm 49, 6 through 8 says, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Here's why. For the redemption of their souls is costly. No man could ever pay the price for another man's sins. It was costly. Only Jesus Christ could pay that price. And he paid that price with his precious blood. Peter here warns about their imagined worthless salvation. He says, you were redeemed by God. Not corruptible things like silver and gold. You were redeemed by God to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. Vain conversation here in verse 16 means a vain manner of life. It could be translated your futile lifestyle. And he connects their vain manner of lives with the vain traditions that were handed down generation after generation among the Jews. And at the time, these people thought that their lives were full and happy. Like I did before I was saved. I thought I was living the life. 
when they were really wretched, miserable, and poor, they were empty. And I eventually came to the same place. I was empty. And I began to look around and said, there's got to be more than this. Unsaved people today are blindly living on substitutes. So then what is the true way that guarantees our redemption? Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is the blood. The way that guarantees our salvation, it is the blood. Salvation involves the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the gospel has not been fully preached until the meaning of the blood of Christ has been explained. The cross is where Jesus shed his blood because of our ugly sins and it made, made it necessary for Jesus to die for us. And Hebrews tells us in 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The Old Testament sacrifices made it clear that, that, that blood was needed to atone for man's sins because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't good enough to take away man's sins. So man needed better blood. And that blood was Christ's blood. The word precious here in verse 19, it means costly. It means valuable. It means priceless. It means nothing is more valuable than the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood is precious. Or I should say blood is priceless for our earthly life. Christ's blood is priceless for our eternal life. It says in verse sixteen, as um, uh, verse nineteen, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It speaks of the purity of the blood. If blood is to cleanse from sin, it has to be pure. And the blood of Jesus Christ is uncontaminated. I used to work for a pharmaceutical company, and we used to make products out of human blood. And those products were injected directly into the veins of those who were sick. The greatest fear of using a blood product is making sure that it is not contaminated. And we had to do a lot of tests to make sure that it wasn't HIV positive, that it wasn't hepatitis in it, nor any other kind of disease that once injected into the patient would make them even sicker or even cause them to die. The blood has to be pure because it's the life of the person. And it's what gives us eternal life, his blood. But it is pure, uncontaminated, incorruptible. Verses 20 through 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. He didn't go, oh man, how in the world? He wasn't caught off guard. He knew it was going to happen. He knew it all along before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. So before God even created Adam and Eve and the galaxies, before they were even spoken into existence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit put together the plan of salvation to redeem Adam's fallen race after he fell. Everything about the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ was expected by God because it was planned by God. Christ's crucifixion wasn't an accident. 
So the plan of redemption was put together before the foundation of the world, but it was manifest, it says here, in these last times for you. This refers to the coming of Christ to the earth, the incarnation. The words here in these last times refers here to the time that Peter wrote. Last, last means that the, the, uh, these times came after the Old Testament times. The words for you here includes the people in Peter's day all the way to us tonight. Christ came to earth to bring salvation for all mankind. It says there, who by him do believe in God. Salvation is through Jesus Christ. It says here, believe in God. This involves our salvation, not just a mental agreement that God exists. And it says, raise him from the dead. Jesus was vindicated when he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely essential to salvation because without the resurrection, Jesus wouldn't be Savior. We could forget about Easter. Everything. But he resurrected. He rose from the dead. And it says here, God gave him glory. Why? Because of the work of Jesus on earth for salvation. Philippians 2.9, Paul said, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And then in verses 22 through 25, Peter points us to the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Because you see, it's Jesus who imparts to us a new pattern of life and a new principle of life. Look at verse 22. Since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. When you're born again and you have now the divine nature of Christ, you are to live that divine nature. The new pattern of life that we have received is experienced through cleansing. Seeing you have purified your souls and through commitment, obeying the truth through the Holy Spirit. So you see, now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. And you're to love each other deeply with all of your heart in the love of God. Hey, you're going to be in eternity together. You better love each other now. So now you must show sincere love to one another as brothers and sisters. The new life that we have in Christ is proof that we have truly been born, God, born again into God's family. And being born again into God's family, that brings us into relationship with others who are also in the family of God. And who are now our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we're to love one another. We're to love these family members. And in order to have a proper relationship with members of God's family is the cleansing and commitment that Peter has just mentioned. It is essential. And then Peter goes on to talk about the integrity of the love that we now have as born-again believers for God's people. The integrity of that love. Is it sincere? He says here, we're to love one another with a what? Pure heart. Our motive is not to give 
I'm sorry, it's not to get, but to give. Our motive is to serve, not to be served. Isn't that what Jesus said? I came not to be served, but to serve. Again, we're to reflect his nature, his character, his attributes. I am to reflect my father's character. If our love is sincere, and if it's from a pure, pure heart, we could never use people or take advantage of them. Have you ever seen people who, who try to pretend they love? It's sad because you can tell. You can clearly see that it's cheap and that it's phony. But the love that we are to share with each other and with a lost world, it has to be produced by the Holy Spirit. And it has to be, it's to be a constant power in our lives. Not something that we turn on and off and on like a light switch. Which unfortunately happens so much in marriage. We can turn it on and off. We can love when we want to and love when we don't want to based on the other person and how they treat us. It's not to be done that way in marriage or in, in other relationships. This love is to be a fervent love. This means is to be, we're to love intently, with intent, without ceasing. And it's something that we have to work at, just like an athlete has to work at his specific skills. And understand, Christian love is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. And, and where, again, the reason I bring up marriage, because that's where I hear it so often throughout the years. I don't feel love for my husband anymore. I don't feel love for my wife anymore. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm praying that God will give me feelings back for my husband or my wife. And I tell him, good luck, you'll be waiting forever. Because love is not godly love, agape love. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's something I choose to do in obedience to the word of God. Well, wait a minute. If I say I love somebody and I don't, then, then but if I say I love somebody, you know, and, and, my, and I'm not being a hypocrite. No, you're being obedient. It's not saying I, 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 I like doing this and, and, and I don't love them, but, but I really like what I, no, that, that, that's being a hypocrite. But God is telling us to love because he's called us to do that. Even though I don't want to, I do it in obedience. That's being obedient, not a hypocrite. And let me tell you something. When, when, when you do that, when you love because God has told you to, guess what? When he commanded you, he will give you the feelings. God doesn't reward disobedience. He honors obedience. And I'm speaking from experience in my own marriage. When my wife and I almost divorced after two years of marriage, she had no love for me. She felt no love. She felt nothing for me. And Xavier remembers those days because he, he prayed for me. He said, Joe, you need to get back in church, man. Because I quit going to church. I just, you know, I just kind of dropped out of everything. And God one day told her, Kathy, you go back and make your marriage work. She didn't want to. 
And she calls me up one day and says, Joe, I, I'm, I'm going to try to make this marriage work. God spoke to my heart. And I was all excited. But she pointed at me and says, but I still don't love you. And I still don't want to be here. And I'm thinking, well, that's motivating. You want this marriage to work and you're going to come here with that kind of attitude? I almost said things that I normally said, but that's where God was working on me. You just be quiet, Joe. She's here. She's saying she wants to let me do the work in her as I'm doing it in you. And as I began to love her, as hard as it was, because she wasn't being loving to me. See, I, that's what we're so used to just, you love me, I can love you to death. But you mess me up and, hey, I can turn it off real quick. God said, that has to change. And so I began to love her, though she didn't want anything to do with me. And it went on for several months. And one day when I asked her to go to church, because she wouldn't go to church, she wouldn't go anywhere with me. She just she didn't even want to talk to me. But God was working in her heart. And he says, Joe, you open your mouth, you're going to undo everything I've been doing. One day I asked her, you want to go to church? She said, yeah. And that was the beginning. And when I got bold enough, I asked her, Kathy, what, what made you start wanting to be with me? She goes, I fell in love with you all over again. Because she, she was being like Christ when she came back to the house. She didn't want to be there. Jesus said, hey, if this cup can pass for me, Lord, Father, so I'll do it. But, hey, your will be done. Kathy chose God's will over her will. And she loved me in spite of me in obedience to God. And God gave her the love for me. And, you know, we're going on 45 years. But it's because it, it, until we obey God, and believe him and trust in what he says. He knows a lot better than we do what we need. And he knows what will make things work. So if you're waiting for a feeling, wait on. But when you obey God, man, he rewards you for your obedience. He will give you the... See, when we say, God, give me the feelings, we're walking by sight. Give me, show me, then I'll do it. No, he says, do it and then I'll show you. That's what it means to walk by faith. I'm trusting in you what you tell me, Lord. Christian love is not a feeling. It's not based on a person's warmth or their attitude or their personality or, or their warmness towards you. It's a matter of the will. I'm doing this because God said so. That's the bottom line. I will never be able to stand before God and say, well, did you see how that person treated me? Did you see how they acted to me? They weren't very loving and kind. And Jesus said, hey, I didn't ask you to love them based on their responses or their warmth or their personality. I said, do it because you're my child, because you reflect who I am to others. We, we, we show love to others when we treat them the same way God treats us. God forgives us, doesn't he? We forgive others. God is kind to us, isn't he? So we need to be kind to others. God is long-suffering with us, isn't he? So we can be long-suffering with others too. Again, it's not a matter of feeling, but of willing. 
And this is something that we have to constantly work at if we're going to succeed. Now, we have two powerful helpers to do this. We have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit. The same truth that we trusted and obeyed to become God's children also nurtures and empowers us to act like God's children. It's impossible to love the truth and hate your brother or sister. It's the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's the first fruit named on the list of fruit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If we are filled with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, we will show the love of God in our daily experience. Verses 23 through 25. Having been born again, notice not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, how? Through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, because... All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The only way to enter God's spiritual family is by a spiritual birth through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be born, I mean, you can only be born into the family of God. You can't join the family of God. You can't join the, the, the church of Christ. You must be born into it. Just like you had two parents in your physical birth, there's two parents in the spiritual birth. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The new birth gives us a new nature as well as a new and living hope. Our first birth was of the flesh. And the flesh is corruptible. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. It can't be anything else. That's why, it, that, that's why it's destined to, to decay and die. Just like we read in creation, every animal, every creature was created after its kind. It can only produce after its kind. It can't produce something else. It can't produce something it's not. I can have children to the day I die, but not one of them will come out sinless and, and flawless like Christ. Because I'm corruptible and I can only produce corruptible children because of the sin nature. This explains why man can't hold the world together. Because it's all based on human flesh. That's destined to decay and die. It's destined to fall apart. Man's works look successful for a time, but then they start to decay and eventually die. From the beginning... From the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and 18, man's attempts to bring us together are doomed to fail. In closing, if we try to build unity in the church based on our first birth, we're going to fail. We're going to fail. But if we build unity based on the new birth, in Christ, it will succeed. It will last for all eternity. Each believer has the same Holy Spirit dwelling within them. We call on the same Father. We share His divine nature. We trust the same Word of God. And that Word will never decay or disappear. Isaiah 46-8 through 8 was quoted here. 
verses 23 and 25. We've trusted the same gospel and have been born of the same spirit. The works of the flesh that could divide us mean nothing when compared with the fruit of the spirit that unites us. And at the end of verse 25, it says, and that that word, at that word, and that word is the good news that was preached to you, Peter said. You see, that's why we need to preach and teach the word of God more than anything else. That doesn't mean that, that music doesn't have its place or methods doesn't have its place or organization doesn't have its place. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important, but there's absolutely no substitute for the word of God. It's the word of God that we, will come, that we can come to know the God of the word better. Let's pray. Father, You are such a great and awesome God. You are such a wonderful Father. Father, we, we can't even begin to explain how great you are, God. You're great in love. You're great in mercy. You're great in grace. You're great in peace. You're great in power. You're great in holiness. Lord, you are just, you're everything that we need. Lord, you bless us beyond measure. And even when we don't deserve it, God. And Father, I pray that you would just minister to our hearts, Father that, Lord, we would become more like you. That, God, we would quit making excuses for our failures. For we are without excuse, God. You've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us Christ. God, you've given us everything we need to be that all were expected to be, Father. So, Lord, may we open our hearts to you.